Well, good morning, brothers and sisters. Welcome to this Good Friday worship service. Please rise and let us worship the Lord. As we come to worship our God, we confess that our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Amen. And God greets you this morning. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let us now sing and let us sing a a hymn of praise. Hymn 78 verses 1 through 3. So it is now at this point that we put ourselves under the discipline of God's holy law and test our lives according to it. And so here, the law of God as it, is, as it comes to us from Exodus 20. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them, or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love 
to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold them guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor, is your neighbor's. And our Lord Jesus Christ summarized the law according to love. And if we think of 1 Corinthians 13, there the Apostle Paul tells us, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith as so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. And so it is truly the fulfillment of the law. Let us now sing in response to God's law, Psalm 88, verses 1, 4, and 6. And this speaks of the alienation that the psalmist has knowing his sinfulness. And he just feels completely closed in by that. So let's sing Psalm 88 verses 1, 4, and 6.
Let's now come before God in prayer and ask for his blessing over this worship service. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we give you thanks that you gather us together as the, as the blood-bought church of our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we have just heard your perfect law, and as we measure our lives according to that perfect standard, we, we see how we do not measure up. We see our failings, we see our sins, but we see our need for salvation. But Father, we praise you that you do not cast us off, you do not turn and hide your face from us forever, but rather you in love, you befriend us as we sing. We thank you that instead of scorning us for our sin, which we deserve, you sent Jesus to take all our sins upon himself. Who has redeemed us by his blood, who has washed us away, washed away all our sins. And Father, we praise you that he also renews us by the Holy Spirit. Father, we thank you that today is a day where we get to focus our energies on the cross of our Savior in such a particular way, in such a concentrated way. Lord, this is what all revelation is about. This is what your word is about. Everything is about Jesus Christ. If we think of when the disciples are walking on the road to Emmaus, Lord Jesus, you explain to them, beginning with Moses, how everything pointed to you. And Lord, many saints long to see who the Messiah would be. It was the prophets that concerning the salvation that we now have and the revelation that we, we now have, they prophesied about the grace that was to be ours and they searched and they searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and his subsequent glories. Lord, they longed to see Jesus. And Father, we praise you that you've revealed him to us. You've shown us and this is something that angels long to look. And so as we read your word and hear it proclaimed, may we think of nothing except Jesus crucified. May we magnify your glorious name and, and may our hearts be moved by your amazing love for us in him. We pray all this in Jesus Christ. Amen. So for this Good Friday service, it's my intention to preach a portion of John's gospel, John 19. And so in preparation and to give more context to that passage, we'll read together from John 18, verses 28 through to 19, verse 18. So at this point, Jesus has already been betrayed, and he's already been before the high priest, and now he's brought before Pilate. So, John 18, verse 28. Then they, that is the high priests and the Jews, led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? 
Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own, na- your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might, that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you're a king? Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, no, this man, but Barabbas. Not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to him, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law he ought to die, because he has made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out, sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of Passover, of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the, to the, place, called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, And with him, two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. So far from the reading of God's word, let's now sing in response Psalm 44, 5, 6, and 8, where in the psalmist he speaks about the mockery of his enemies.
So our text this morning is John chapter 19, the verses 1 through 18. And since we have read those words already, we'll proceed to the proclamation of the gospel. And then after, we'll sing in response hymn 26, all verses. Dear brothers and sisters of our Lord Jesus Christ, there is this memorial bridge in the States. It was originally known as the 14th Street Bridge, and it goes over the Potomac River in the U.S. And it's been renamed to a memorial bridge, and the name of the bridge is, uh, is Arlen Dean Williams Memorial Bridge. And so in 1982, Mr. Williams boarded a flight, and he was heading from Washington, D.C., and he was going to Florida. So he's what's called a snowbird. He was trying to leave the, the cold, frigid weather of, of Washington, D.C., and he was trying to exchange that for some nice, warm beaches in Florida. However, his flight never made it to Florida. Shortly after takeoff, the plane failed to, to gain altitude, and ended up crashing into the bridge and then plunging into the, into the river, into the cold, icy river. And on impact, almost all of the passengers on the plane died except for six, and Mr. Williams was one of them. And so there they were in the water, freezing cold, trying to, to stay alive. Now because of how close the airport was to the actual crash site, the search and rescue helicopter was on the scene very quickly. And what happened is the helicopter came over and it dropped a line to Mr. Williams. And instead of climbing up to safety, he handed the line to the other person. And he did that five times until all the other passengers were rescued. And then as the helicopter came back to do one final sweep to pick him up, the plane wreckage, it shifted a bit and sucked him under and he drowned. And so one man died to save another. See, it's an inspiring account of someone who gave his life for someone else. It's a story of self-sacrifice. It's the most incredible act of love there is. If you think of Jesus Christ, he said, no greater love is there than this than to lay down one's life for a friend. And this man did it for total strangers. You see, on Good Friday this morning, we have the wonderful opportunity of considering Jesus Christ and how he laid down his life for us. How he sacrificed his life. The Christ, the Messiah, the anointed king, giving his life for sinners. And this is something that's a bit of a note from the beginning of John's gospel and it comes through at certain times. Already in in John chapter 3, John tells us, well Jesus says that he is going to be like that serpent in the desert that is lifted up for the deliverance of of those who believe in him so that they would have life and then it continues again and it comes back when he actually tells the disciples and he foretells his death he tells that the son of man is going to be lifted up and then just earlier in chapter 18 when he's before Caiaphas it says there that Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people in all these ways John is telling us Here is Jesus. This is what he's going to do. He's going to die for his people. And so as Christ's congregation is 
publicly presented as portrayed as crucified before us this morning, what we need to see, what you need to see, is that Jesus the King did that for you. That Jesus Christ the King, he, he humbled himself and that humiliation involved death on a cross and before that there was mockery, there was unjust condemnation, there was abject rejection. And he did all of that for you and for me. He did all of that because he loves us. Because there is no greater love than this than to lay down one's life. And so congregation, as we are here this morning for Good Friday, what we need to see is our king. We need to behold our king. And that brings us to our theme this morning, behold King Jesus who humbled himself to save you. And we'll look at how our king was disgraced, We'll look at how our king was condemned and also how our king was rejected. So firstly, the king disgraced for you. So one of the things that we are first confronted with as we jump into chapter 9, our passage, is the mockery, the shame, and the disgrace that Jesus experiences. And the other three gospels also mention the mockery of Jesus Christ. And so John in this respect is, is no different. And so at this point, as already mentioned, Jesus has been betrayed. He's been betrayed by Judas in the garden, and now he's appeared before the high priest. And now here he is before Pilate. And what is the charge? Well, verse 30 gives us that ambiguous answer. What is the charge? Well, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. And already the Holy Spirit is showing us what a debacle the whole thing is. He's showing us what a scam it is. This man is so bad that they don't have a charge against him. That's how horrible he is. And yet despite of that, Pilate still examines Jesus Christ due to the insistence of the Jews. And during that initial examination where he speaks to Jesus Christ, we hear the first charge, which is treason. Jesus said that he was a king. And so any king that had... Uh, who mentioned any person that said that it were a king, they were going in direct uh, opposition to, to Caesar as the Jews cried out later. Verse 36, Jesus tells us, he says, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servant would be fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. Jesus is a different sort of king. He's not a king, his, his people, he's not going to start a military coup and then establish his power that way. No, here is the king, the Messiah, he has come. He's going to restore his people, but it's not through military power, it's not through might, but through suffering and through death, as we will see. And this, so this was Pilate's first exchange. He had a conversation about kingship. Now for him, it was probably what he thought, an interesting conversation about what is a kingdom and, and what is truth. But he found nothing deserving of death. And yet, he doesn't free Jesus Christ. Instead, and this is where we start to see Jesus' disgrace. He hands him over to the soldiers. So first he whips him, he flogs him, and then he gives him over to these soldiers. Already, he's bleeding and he's bruised at this point. And they disgrace him. Oh, you're a king. Well, we better get you a crown. And so they craft this sort of crown of thorns, and they shove it on his head. Now that's better. Now you look like a king. And then, well, a king needs a robe, and so they grab a robe and they put it around him. Oh, now you look a lot better. And what sort of tribute do they bring to this king? 
Oh, hail, King of the Jews, and they strike him with their hands, it says. And literally, the text tells us that they greeted him with a slap. You know, in those days, especially if we think of even today, if someone slaps you in public, that is quite a disgrace. They're shaming you. You don't greet anyone with a slap, let alone a king. And so here is the king of kings, and they greet him with slaps, and they beat him. And then after the soldiers have their fun with Jesus, Pilate takes the swollen, bleeding Christ, and he presents them to the Jews. You see, what Pilate was trying to do here is trying to, to show the Jews how silly it was for them to condemn this man. He was saying, look how harmless he is. You're worried about this king? But still, if you look at what he's doing, he brings Jesus out. And this is what we notice in the gospel, and it's not mentioned in the other gospel, is that he presents Jesus. He presents Christ in his, you know, with this purple robe, with this crown of thorns, and he puts him up as a spectacle before the eyes of the Jews. And he does this twice. He does this once over here where he says, Behold the man. And then he does it again later in, in the verses 14 through 15 when he makes his judgment. He brings Jesus out and he, puts him, he makes him a spectacle. A public spectacle. And all of this was before he experiences the horrific death on the cross. Behold your king, he scoffs. Shall I crucify your king? See, what a humiliating thing for our Savior. And who is this man? Behold the man. And for John, that is a term loaded with meaning. See, that is a term that speaks of the incarnation. Who is this man? Well, this man is none other than the Son of God Himself. This is the Word that became flesh. This is the one who was the Word who was with God from the beginning. And the one who was not only with God, but was God. And who came down and became a man. This is the one through whom all things were made and without him nothing was made that was made. And yet here he is, he's put up as a spectacle, bleeding, mocked, and humiliated. You see, this is the one who had the form of God. And he became nothing. He became nothing but a laughing stock and a disgrace. Congregation, behold the man. Now, why would Jesus endure all of that? You see, this wasn't simply a coincidence. All four Gospels go to great pains to tell us about how Christ was humiliated and shamed. And so why did Jesus do that? Well, it was to take away your shame. It was to take away my shame. Is take away the shame from our sins. You see, that was the very first consequence of sin, wasn't it? If you think of Genesis 3, Adam and Eve, they take of the fruit, and suddenly everything changes. Suddenly they feel shame. Before, we're explicitly told in Genesis 2, right at the end, that they were naked together and they felt no shame. And suddenly they sin and they're disgraced. They couldn't stand before God like they did before. They couldn't go and walk with Him in the garden. No, they couldn't bear that. Instead, they hid from Him. They, put, they grabbed fig leaves and they sewed it together. They tried to hide their shame. And this is the story of men ever since the fall. We sin and so there is shame. Just think of the people of, of Israel. We sang from Psalm 44. And they talk about how they sinned against God and now they experience great shame. 
how God disgraces them. We, we hear about this in Daniel's prayers. So if you think of the, the context of Daniel, Daniel, he's just outside of the, uh, the exile. Well, he's, he's in the uh, captivity of Babylon. And he looks back. And so think of what happened. So Israel had sinned against God. They transgressed the law. And then God in his judgment sent them away. And Jerusalem became a laughing stock. That was one of the judgments. They would be a byword among the nations. Nations would walk past and scorn them. And Daniel prays, he says, To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us, open shame, as it, as it is this day. To the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs shame, to our kings, to our princes, to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. Or think of Ezra, who prayed, O my God, I am ashamed, and I blush to lift my face. To you, for my iniquities are, have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt mounted up to the heavens. Sin leads to shame. Shame belonged to Israel, and their guilt had mounted to the heavens. Now, maybe you see yourself in those words. Just think of your own shame, the shame that you experience because of your sins. Maybe you have it where. You come before God and you can't even look at his face. You just look down because you can't bear to look up at him. You're like that tax collector. He just beats his breast and says, Lord, help me, a sinner. Maybe you feel that your, your sins are rising. They're like this great mountains when you actually see them. And so you feel the shame. And what happens when we feel shame? Well, we try to pull away. We try to hide. We pull away from God because we can't, we can't be in harmony with him because of the shame of our sins. And so how do you remedy that? How do you remedy the shame that you experience? Well, there's some ways that we try to remedy it. Sometimes we try to justify our sins, because then that's one way we don't have to deal with it. We can excuse it. Or we minimize it. We say it's not so bad, and that's another way that, again, we don't have to deal with the actual shame of our sins. Or simply what we do is we distract ourselves. We do all these other different things, because then we don't have to dress the shame that we feel because of what we've done. But that doesn't get rid of the, the shame, does it? It just stays with us. And so there is only one way for us to be free. It's by looking to Jesus Christ who has taken our shame, who was ridiculed and who was mocked and who was shamed in our place. See, this is the amazing promise that God gave to his people. So Israel had been shamed because of their sin, because of how they transgressed God. And God comes to them in Isaiah 61 verse 7. He says, instead of your shame, this is what I'm going to do for you. Instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. God promised that he was going to turn their shame into honor. That he was going to change it so that they wouldn't experience shame. Instead, they're going to experience great rejoicing for the freedom that they have. And that's what he's done for us in Jesus Christ. He's done that through Jesus, the King of the Jews. And so congregation, behold your King who was disgraced, who was shamed, who took your shame on himself. On him was placed a crown of thorns so that you and so that me could experience the crown of life. Christ took your shame so that God may now look upon you all and smile with his favor.
He was shamed for you. And not only was Christ shamed because of his, disgraced and shamed, but also unjustly condemned. See, the trial is a joke. Although Pilate describes himself in verse 10 as, as the one who has great authority, authority to condemn someone and authority to acquit someone, to release them or crucify them, the apostle John shows otherwise. He presents the trial as this one big flip-flop. He goes outside and he goes inside. He goes outside and he goes inside. And he shows us that Pilate's justice goes only so far as his politics will allow. Throughout the process, Jesus is completely innocent. It declares it many times. So the first statement of innocent, it comes in in, uh, chapter 18. So Pilate says, he, he speaks to Jesus, he says, what is truth? And then he goes out afterwards in 18 verse 38, he says, after he said this, he went back to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt. So that's the first time. And then the trial continues. And then as we saw in the first point, the soldiers, they mock him, they beat him. And then Pilate says it again. So he brings Jesus out and he says, see, I am bringing him out to you so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So that's twice. And if you think about why is the trial even going? There is no charge. He's found no guilt. He's made his declaration, but it keeps on going. And then you have the third statement where they press and then Pilate says, says to him in verse, in verse 6, he says, take him yourselves and crucify him for I find no guilt in him. I find no guilt in him, and it, and it keeps going. And it's absurd if you think about it. Like, who's in charge? Pilate's the governor. And yet he says something. He says he's innocent, and the trial keeps going. And it's all because he's trying to appease this bloodthirsty mob who are outside his door. See, Jesus is not guilty. There's nothing worthy of crucifixion. And yet, what we read in, in verses 13, that Pilate goes and he sits down on the judgment seat anyway. So that was, a, that was a stone, an elevated stone, a sort of a platform that ruling authorities would sit on and when they would stay the, the justice, they would say whether or not the person was guilty or not guilty. And so when he, he sits down on this throne, and even though he said three times that Jesus wasn't guilty, that there was no sin in him, he condemns him to death. He condemns him. It's the biggest miscarriage of justice there is. He condemns Jesus Christ all because of the bloodthirsty mob. And if you think about it, this is the long-awaited Messiah, the one, the king of the Jews who the prophets tell us is going to be the one who is from David's line who will deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. Jeremiah 23. And so here's this Messiah who executes justice and righteousness and he is condemned from partiality and unjustly. And the amazing thing, congregation, is that Jesus submitted to this ruler. He submitted himself to the judgment. Maybe we could ask ourselves, well, why would Jesus submit? You know, why, why would he submit to this man? After all, he's completely not doing what God requires of him as an authority. But the thing is, Jesus submitted to him because he saw in the injustice of Pilate, he saw behind that the perfect justice of God against sin. 
So Christ saw behind the injustice of Pilate the perfect judgment of God against sin. He recognized that Pilate would have no authority unless God had first given him the authority, as he says there. He, said, he says it to, Paul, uh, to Pilate himself. You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. God had given Pilate this authority. And Jesus recognizes that. He recognizes the hand of God judging him. You see, Christ didn't just die as some sort of symbol of love, as, as a little picture of love. No, he died because a sacrifice had to be made, because a payment had to be made, because punishment had to be meted out. And he demonstrated that love by dying in our place. And that's what John wants us to see, that Christ is condemned in our place. And how do we know this? Well, have you, did you notice, congregation, as, you, as we read through, that there's various references to the Passover? John makes these little offhand comments almost to the Passover. So the first one comes in chapter 18, verse 39. And so Pilate is speaking to the, the Jews, and he says, But you have this custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? And instead, Barabbas a robber, who is guilty, he is released, and Jesus is handed over. And so there you got a, a reference to the Passover again. And then it continues, and he says, so just as Pilate sits on the throne, on, well, on, the, on the judgment seat, and gives his, his sentence, we get 14, verse 14 in chapter 19. It says, now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He makes another comment to the Passover. And congregation, what's the Passover? The Passover is when God, he, it was an institution that God did for his people so that when they were leaving Exodus, when they were leaving Egypt, he told them to get a lamb. And that lamb would take their sins. And then he told them to crucify, well, to, not crucify, to kill that lamb that had to be without blemish or any sort of spot. It had to be completely free. And he'd take that lamb, kill it, and then paint the blood on the doorpost so that the angel of death would pass over them. And so here we have all these little references to the Passover. And so what John, the gospel writer, wants us to see, he wants us to look at Jesus to see him unjustly condemned, to see this perfect one who is blameless, who is without spot. He wants to see that this one was delivered up so that the angel of death passes over us, so that God's judgment doesn't rest on you. He wants us to say with John the Baptist, right at the beginning of uh, John's gospel, to, to say when he sees Jesus, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Brothers and sisters, he wants you to see that Christ died for you and in your place, to take your judgment, to take your punishment that your sin deserves. He wasn't condemned to the depths of a frozen river. No, that he was condemned to hellish agony, to experience the wrath of God against sin. And he did that so that you don't have to. So congregation, see how Christ humbled himself for you. Although Jesus, the Son of God, the King, the Messiah, he is completely perfect, completely blameless. He is holy. He became sin in your place. The righteous for the unrighteous. The just for the unjust. You see, all our sins, our, our materialism, our, our worship of self, our pride, our, 
hateful thoughts, our resentment, our slander, our, our lack of love, our lust, our sexual impurity, our gossip, our careless words, whatever it is, you name it, all those sins make us guilty before God. And Jesus says, give it to me. Give me all your sins, all of it. Give it to me and I die in your place because I was condemned for you. And I did that because I love you. So behold your king who was condemned in your place, who took your judgment on himself. And finally, congregation, we need to see that this condemnation also moved to rejection. You see, Christ is brought before the Jews one last time in the verses 13 through 15. And he's humiliated and he's condemned. So he's, he's brought forward and, and Pilate says, Behold your king. And the enraged crowd says, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. And then they say, We have no king but Caesar. And so he, deliver, he was delivered over to be crucified. In congregation, we can't underestimate the level of rejection at that moment. See, the Jews had been waiting for ages for the Messiah. This was their hope throughout the exile was that when they were out of the land of Israel. This was their hope that a Messiah would come who would restore his people, who would usher in the kingdom of God. And now the Messiah was right in front of them and they completely reject him. You see, Pilate was saying more than he knew when he said, behold the king. We know who that king is. It's, it's the Messiah, Jesus Christ. This was the one that, this was the comfort that Isaiah prophesied about. This was the one through whom restoration would come as Jeremiah prophesied. And now the Messiah is standing right in front of the Jews and they completely reject him. And they say, away with him. You know who's our king? Caesar. Now imagine what that would have felt like for Christ. Here he is standing before his very own people. He's beaten, he is bruised, and there is no sympathy. There's no, no sympathy whatsoever. Instead, they turn their face away. They reject him. And maybe some of you have, have felt that. You've felt rejection. Maybe you've had someone walk out, uh, walk out on you. And so you know the profound hurt that that causes. Or maybe when someone, by their actions, they, they say that they don't care about you. Well, that's incredibly painful. Or maybe it's even more explicit that a family member says that you're no longer one of us. Well, that is heartbreaking. And so here's Christ before his own people. And he's completely rejected. The people who should have received him turn their face away from him. And yet his rejection was worse. Because the greatest rejection that he experienced was at Golgotha in the verses 17 through 18. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to place him to the place called the place of the skull, which is the, in Aramaic is called Golgotha. And there they crucified him. There he was crucified. You see, when you and me, when we experience rejection from other people, we still have the comfort that God hasn't rejected us. And we hold on to that very dearly. But that is not what Christ experienced. When all these people mocked him and rejected him, when he was crucified, he was, the greatest agony that he experienced was his rejection from God. 
He loved God. You know that. It was his greatest delight to be in relationship with God. And suddenly that relationship was cut off. God turned his face from him. As Paul writes in Galatians, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. God rejected Jesus. He was cut off. You see, God should say to us, Away with you. Away with you, you wretched sinner. I curse you. I hate you. I turn my face from you. I cast you out. As we sang in Psalm 44. But instead, he says it to Jesus. I curse you, I hate you, I cast you out, I reject you. And he did that congregation so that we could be received, so that God can warmly receive us in his loving embrace. Christ did that so that instead of being rejected by God, we could be received. And so, congregation, behold your king who humbled himself for you, who experienced the greatest rejection that anyone could experience. Experience the hellish agony of rejection from God when God turns his face away. And he did that because he loves you. Because there's no greater love than this, than to lay down one's life for a friend. See, no doubt, no doubt congregation, there are many who, who drive over that Arland, you know, Arland Dean Williams Memorial Bridge and they give no thought to what happened. They give no thought to the self-sacrifice that happened there. They don't think about how Mr. Williams laid down his life to save others. They just drive over their bridge. And the same can be the case with Good Friday. Good Friday becomes another holiday. We don't think of the self-sacrifice of our, G of our Savior Jesus Christ. How he laid down his life for us. There's many people in this world for Good Friday is just another holiday. But Jesus didn't hang on a cross so that we could respond with neutrality or with apathy or just go about doing our daily things. No, John tells us that our Savior was crucified for you so that you would believe and have life in his name. So that you would respond. This is what John 20 verse 31 says. That he tells us that you may believe that Jesus is Christ, the King, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So congregation, this Good Friday, behold your king who died for you, who was condemned for you, who was humiliated for you, who was shamed for you, who experienced hellish agony for you. Look at his disgrace and see his love for you. Look at how he was condemned and see his love for you. Look at how he was absolutely rejected and see his love for you. Because he came not to, to save you from some river, but to save you from the eternal hell of, of, of God's wrath. And why did he do that? Because no greater love is there than this, than to lay down one's life for his friend. And Christ did it not just for strangers, but for enemies. He did that for you. Because he loves you. He saved you. And so congregation, behold your king who was crucified for you in your place so that you may experience his love. That is why Good Friday is Good Friday. Amen.
Let us sing in response hymn 26, All Stanzas. Let's now come before God in a prayer of thanksgiving. Lord God in heaven, in many ways it feels strange to call the day of Christ's crucifixion a good day. Well, just the fact that there had to be a day of suffering and a day of crucifixion to take our punishment in itself is horrible. That's not good. But the fact that that Christ, you came willingly, you came fully, and you freely gave yourself in our place, that you despised the shame, the condemnation, the rejection, and you laid down your life for us on a cross. Lord, that is goodness beyond compare. Lord Jesus, from that cross you cried, Father, forgive them. And also, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Lord, we needed both cries. For us to be forgiven, you had to be forsaken. And that Christ was willing to do that in our place. It silences our pride, Father. And it fills us with worship. Who are we that you would do such a thing for us? And then Jesus, you said it is finished. That there was nothing more to be done. Salvation was secure. We were reconciled to you. The just for the unjust, the perfect for the broken ones, the Lamb of God for the enemies of God. And Father, we praise you because you, Jesus, were fully forsaken that we would be forever forgiven. Lord, we praise you for this. We marvel at your love for us in Christ. And Lord, we, we pray that you would now bless us on, as we enjoy the rest of this commemorative day. Lord, may we delight to, do, to know nothing but Christ and Him crucified. That our holiday would not lessen our zeal for you. 
and that our activities would not distract us from the real reason why we set this day aside. And Father, the day of the Lord, of our Lord's crucifixion was a day that you made. And so we rejoice and we are glad in it. So Father, we pray that you would bless us, that we would enjoy fellowship with family and friends, and that we would bask in the goodness of Good Friday. We pray all this in Christ's glorious name. Amen. Your offerings are are now requested for the the ministry of mercy, particularly for Eucalypt. And after your offerings have been given, we'll sing from hymn 29, the verses 1, 2, and 3. Hymn 29, the verses 1, 2, and 3.
Receive now the blessing of the king who gave his son for you and go in peace. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and give you peace and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.